Hello and welcome once again to Wrestling Memories Then and Now on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can check us out beyond the FM dial. Yes, you can go worldwide, listen to us live at RadioNorthland.org and tune in. That's the app you can pick up with your smartphone. Uh, speaking of RadioNorthland.org, we do have a Wrestling Memories page on there, Wrestling Memories Then and Now. And back when it was just Wrestling Memories, where you can check out all Oh, almost uh, seven seasons now as we're uh, nearing uh, the completion of season seven. Uh, yes, all of the episodes available on that page send you to the SoundCloud and you can check them out, download them, share them with friends, share them with enemies, just share. It's a great way to uh, listen to some good history, listen to some great wrestlers who uh, unfortunately uh, some some who aren't with us anymore. So it's a good time to check that out at RadioNorthland.org. Wrestling Memories Then and Now I have uh, this week it's a, a bit of a is a deja vu all over again, and we're going to be have this man on, uh, and it's a big big welcome back uh, to him. However, under some some sadder circumstances, because uh, he's on today to help us uh, remember and celebrate the life of the late great Larry the Axe Henning. Of course, uh, Larry Henning uh, passed away, left us uh, here at the beginning of the month of December. On the 6th of the month, uh, passing away at the age of 82. And we're going to talk in this hour, and uh, if we get a little overflow, we get a little overflow on the time. We're going to talk about uh, Larry, not only uh, his his career in the ring, but we want to talk about Larry, uh, you know, the family man, Larry the the friend, uh, and Larry, and just what his connection meant to to our guest. And he's not a guest. He is a co-host, mind you. The Grizzle Vet's out on vacation this week. He'll be back for the year-end review show next week, but this week, I figure, you know what, we play Secret Santa, sometimes we play mystery guests, but there is no mystery once I announce this gentleman. He is a distinguished pro wrestling historian. You want to talk AWA history, this man is the guy. Yes, he has good information, he is well studied. He is a wonderful uh, author. He has books on the AWA, the history of pro wrestling in Minnesota. He does podcasts, he is all over the place, and he's back he is back from uh, lots of uh, projects and lots of living, and it's always a pleasure to bring the man who is the co-founder, the, uh, we call him the senior executive producer of Wrestling Memories and Wrestling Memories Then and Now, the one and only gentleman. George Shire, the authority himself. It's uh, a big welcome back. I, I had to roll it out just a little bit with the red carpet. I got it cleaned. <laughs> wow. You know, uh, just listening to it, I'm worn out, man. Hey, Glenn, it's good to be back on. And uh, you are correct. Uh, it, it's rather under uh, sad times, you know. And But you and I, we, we did many uh, tribute shows. And as you said in your intro with some of these guys that uh, you go to the SoundCloud and listen to the interviews, there are many boys out there that uh, we did tribute shows to and and. Well, we did tribute shows, and we also had them on the air, you know, when they were with us, and, and that's uh, really sad too. So, but yeah, Lee, Max Hennig, he um, he was bigger than life, uh, <clears throat> and I knew him. I got to tell you, I knew him. I knew him back in his pretty boy Larry Hennig days to start with, and he was a guy who who through the course of his uh, wrestling career reinvented himself as as the times changed and as he needed to change you know wrestling was an ever-changing business back in the territory days and larry was distinguished in the fact that he was 
one of the, I guess we'd say five mainstay wrestlers in the AWA territory. Uh, people have heard me say that every territory back in the day had their their three or four or five mainstay guys, guys that were always on the carts, always in the territory, and then all of those other wrestlers that came and went in and out of a territory. All the storylines and the programs uh, were set up to uh, have them work with and against those mainstay wrestlers. And Larry had the distinguished uh, honor of being among the mainstays in the AWA. Mm -hmm. and, you, uh, and, and anytime you want to jump in here, please do, because you know me, I could ramble on for 20 minutes without taking a drink of water. So. You know, absolutely. When we identify uh, AWA, some of the Homestead guys, uh, Larry Hennig uh, is in the same breath as uh, a Vern Gagne and even to some degrees, uh, well, a little bit because they had their own thing in other territories with the Crusher and Bruiser. But Larry, I think it would be Larry and Vern when people want to think about those all-time AWA guys. And, uh, you know, and, and, and reading and researching and just looking back on the career of, of Larry Henning, I mean, that, that I mean, he started up, he was a, a guy who, of course, kind of like Vern, but he he was in the uh, the amateur field and, you know, pro wrestling and high, or amateur wrestling, pardon me, and high school not quite pro yet uh yeah you know working his way through the and uh, the great uh, city of robbinsdale he uh you know cut his teeth and he himself uh, had some great success in high school uh, leading up to uh, a big win in his senior year so let's talk about larry a little bit uh, in his earlier years as as the collegiate and as a guy that was kind of in that Vern Gagne mold uh, to a degree well you know in, in many ways uh larry and Vern, even though they shared the uh, same high school, uh, 10 years apart, they graduated. Uh, Larry was entering college, and the one thing that he did differently than what Vern Gagne did, and you know, we all take different paths in life. Uh, Larry got married at a very young age of 19 years old. And so when it came time to consider uh, finishing college or, or going on and, and doing some other endeavor in life, he'd already started a family at age 19. And at, by his own admission, he said that I had to get a job to support my family. And pro wrestling at the time was a good outlet because Larry had the amateur background. You know, he was noticed by his coach, uh, John Gregelko, who, by the way, was at his uh memorial service yesterday and we'll get on that later but larry thought the world of john gregelko and even though larry wanted to be uh, probably inspired to be a football player uh, he he laughed and said he could never have been a, a basketball player because his head would hit the rim of the uh, basketball net <laughs> now he wasn't quite that tall but that was his humor but uh john gregelko saw in larry because of some of his amateur background in wrestling that he would be a good wrestler and in those days the guys that got in to the wrestling business there were many many that came out of the college ranks the amateur wrestling background you know you go down the line of wrestlers and if they either they either had a football background or they had an amateur wrestling background and Larry was one of those guys now we know Vern did 
But Vern's path was a little bit differently because, you know, he was such a, a different kind of a wrestler. I mean, he was, well, Vern was the real deal. He, he, could, he could shoot, he could hook, and he was, he was acknowledged for his ability to draw without a, a gimmick, so to speak. His gimmick actually being that he could wrestle. So Larry didn't quite have that. Larry, by, by God's grace, was a bigger person. And he was never a guy that you would say was uh, heavy or fat, but he was big. And at about 200 and, oh boy, about 270 pounds or 260 pounds when he started in the pro ranks, you know, he was already 40 or 50 or 60 pounds heavier than Vern was back in the beginning of their careers. And so his style was different. He got into the pro ranks under the tutelage of an old veteran by the name of Joe Pazendak and Vern Gagne, of course. And uh, Joe Pazendak was another guy who, you know, he, he doesn't get the credit he deserves in history when we talk wrestling, but he was, a, a, like I said, an old veteran at that point in time who was again a real deal wrestler. He was a shooter and he could show, you know, he could teach anyone a lesson real quick in the ring. And so uh, he, along with Vern, took Larry under their wing and Larry made that move. And again, because he needed to work, needed to, he'd already started a family at uh, the age of 19 and 20 years old and, and uh, out of necessity. Now we could look at many people in life and a lot of people have done that. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh no. As we talk this afternoon though, uh, Glenn, you're going to hear about how important Larry's family was to him. That seems to be the ongoing theme uh, in his with just looking and doing the research, just how big and, and, and how much his family really, really meant to him and, and meant in the decisions that he made, the things that impacted uh, his career. And he always had the time, made the time. And of course, a great reasoning for why he, you know, he stayed where he was, 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 was family. But even back then, I mean, trying to make ends meet, you know, the college thing really wasn't going to work out. He gets into the pro business. I, I mean, he finds some really uh, reputable trainers, but was he doing other things as well when he was, uh, you know, training to be this wrestler Were there, I mean, there had to have been other jobs uh, to kind of keep him uh, and the family afloat while he was getting into the business and, and involving into this, uh, this, this professional wrestler. Well, you know, like most people, Larry was a guy who probably had a lot of little uh, jobs here and there that he did, but he did rely probably most heavily on the pro wrestling side of it, and he was eager to get into it. He saw it at the time as a, a way to maybe have a steady income. And you have to realize, sometimes fans today don't don't comprehend how all of these different uh, wrestling outlets in the country, these territories. If a guy wanted to get into the business, he really had to take a look at that and say, hey, I can travel all over the country if I need to. Now, Larry, again, because he had gotten married at that young age, he sort of re uh, uh, was reclined to the fact that I have to stay closer to home. That was a choice he made. He could have still traveled. Um, I hate to compare him to Vern Gagne in this instance because we both know that Larry and Vern had some uh, professional 
and uh, outside the ring differences mm -hmm. through their respective careers. But with Larry, um, he decided that he wasn't going to take his family on the road, his wife and young kids, and, and live in, in trailer parks or apartments in different cities and be gone for, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 months at a time, uh, or, or, you know, even travel by himself on his own. Uh, I remember years ago, Nick Bockwinkel said to me, he said, you know, the worst thing that a pro wrestler in that era could do was get married because it's, it's hard to be away from your, your wife. If you have kids, it's hard to be away from them. And he said the road was conducive to all kinds of, of, uh, enemies, so to speak, uh, infidelity in the marriages was, was part of it. And that's not to say all the boys did this, but it, it was there because you're away from your family for six months. You don't see them and face it, human nature takes over. So Larry made some really good choices in that. I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to subject my kids, my wife to this. Now, when we talk about Larry being a mainstay in the Minneapolis territory, which eventually became the AWA and, and their various cities, but Larry made the decision that if I stay here, uh, I don't have to subject my family to this travel. And that was important to him. He wanted to have his kids be in the same schools and be able to have normal childhoods. He wanted to be able, in most cases, to wrestle on a card and be home at night after the card or within a, you know, a day or a day and a half so and come back home. A personal choice. Mm -hmm. There are times when I think, and this is, just, this is just an opinion on this one, there are times when I think that also bothered Larry because he probably would have liked to have experienced more of the territories than he was able to. And I can only say this again, it's just a personal opinion. I think that may have been an underlying jealousy with Vern Gagne. And again, Larry's not here to tell us yes or no, but he was a very, very committed family man. And it was important to him to be there for his kids. He never missed any of the, the his his kids growing up, he never missed any of their school conferences or, or, you know, their dance recitals or or school events, sporting events, and that was important to him. And I want to talk about now, Larry. Uh, you know, you, we we mentioned the training with 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 Vern and Joe uh, Pazendak. Uh, where did where did Larry uh, start? I mean, cutting his teeth. I, I I see in some of my notes that he ended up uh, traveling a, a little bit out of the area, out to Chicago, and worked at the at the Marigold. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Larry and uh, before he got into the AWA, and let's talk about when he entered into the AWA. But first, a little bit of his pre AWA work and uh, some of the stuff that he did, what what he worked under, what was his style. Let's let's get a little bit into that. Uh, Pre, uh, pretty boy heading phase. Larry's very first professional wrestling match was in Mankato, Minnesota, small town, southern Minnesota, and he wrestled against a guy, and this was in uh, April of 1957. That was his first pro match. 
and it was against a guy named Billy Wicks. Now, Billy Wicks, for fans that don't know, was also a native St. Paul, Minnesota uh, athlete. Now, Billy had a great background, and if you did some study on him, you'd realize that you'd say, well, where did, where did he go? Whatever became of him. Bottom line is, after wrestling, starting his career here, he left and went south and worked in most of the southern territories, places like Alabama and uh, Tennessee and, and, you know, Florida. And what, what happened with Billy was that he started in 1960. I know we're going off track a little bit, but I just want you to know how good he was against Larry Hennigan that first match. He was a real wrestler as well, and he had that amateur background. But he went down south and started a very colorful feud with a guy named Sputnik Monroe. And in those days, Sputnik was, he was kind of the white version of a black wrestler, if we can define it that way. And he played it, he played it that way. And the feud that Billy Wicks and Sputnik had is still legendary to this day back in 1960-61, and Billy Wicks made a career of it. So long story short, that was Larry's first match. Larry didn't win it, of course. None of the rookies ever coming in to the wrestling business, with but the rarest exception, and again, Vern Gagne being one of them, would win their very first pro match because they were learning, and they'd spend a lot of time, most of these guys, and Larry falls into this category, they spend about four to five years in the business in those days before they were uh, relegated upon proving themselves and showing that they could draw crowds and, and they had something going for them four or five years before they started going up on the cards and maybe main eventing. And uh, again, that's the one rare exception between Larry and Vern. Vern was in the main event from the first match on up. Never never left it, actually. So maybe there's a little bit of that professional rivalry there, too, between the two of them. But Larry spent the first four, five years uh, hauling the ring truck around. And let's clear the fact that in 1957, 58, 59, the Minneapolis Territory was still promoted under the umbrella of the National Wrestling Alliance. So there was no AWA yet, but they had had regular wrestling just like they always did uh, for the AWA when that was formed in 1960. So Larry, was he drove the ring truck, and by that I mean when you go to these smaller towns like Mankato, or Redwood Falls, or Owatonna, any, any small town in Minnesota, they have wrestling cards. Uh, the, the ring truck would come in the afternoon. They'd, the guy driving it would set up the ring, and Larry was doing that. Many of the rookies through the years got their experience that way. And then they would also be there to referee matches on the cards. And they, at times, when a, a wrestler was a no-show or for some reason couldn't come, uh, the, that ring truck guy would also have to fill in for the opponent. So they're really doing a lot of hard work. But in the meantime, and this was the beauty of 
working with so many great wrestlers that you gained all this experience. And Larry had that opportunity. When he got to 1960 and Vern started the AWA in uh, August of 60, there were a handful of guys that Vern drew from the pool to assist him because they had moved away from the NWA. And he had guys like veterans like Hard Boiled Haggerty, Lenny Montana, Tiny Mills, Stan Crusher Kowalski, Leo Namalini of Minnesota Gopher football fame and a great uh, major, major football player as well, Wilbur Snyder, Gene Kaniski, and then he had some of his, his well, Joe Scarpello was in there. And that was kind of the core group that worked with Vern in those early, that early year or so of the AWA. But all grizzled veterans that knew how to pack a house. And then you had your undercard guys. And he had guys like Jim Haiti and uh, Roy McClarity. Uh, Larry Hennig was one of them. Dale Lewis came along. So, I mean, these were guys, Don Jardine who was later known as the spoiler and super destroyer. Uh, he was, he was one of those early guys that worked for Vern. And these were the guys that worked the undercards, gaining experience. And again, traveling around the circuit and uh, working with different guys every night. And that's how Larry picked up his earliest experience. Now we're going to talk about uh, he, when he gets into the AWA under the tutelage of Vern. Uh, let's talk about, you know, because when we think about the earlier days, uh, the early career of Larry Hennig, uh, a fan, a passing fan that hasn't really read all of the info would just think, well, then all of a sudden he, he teamed up with Harley Race. But no, he actually uh, was working a little bit more of a scientific uh, babyface style and ended up with a brief championship run with a man by the name of Duke Hoffman. Tell us how he found his way uh, into this early role and uh with this tag team short-lived tag team that actually had the, the belts on them for a time here with with duke hoffman well it, it wasn't quite as quick as that uh during 1961 and 60 very early 62 if you go back to the uh that time era larry had taken a tour of japan and back in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s japan would have these uh six and eight week tournaments where American wrestlers from different territories would go over there. And the American guys were always heels, obviously, on Japanese on soil. And so it was weird because you'd see uh, different types of, of tag team combinations and you'd see different matchups with the American guys wrestling against the Japanese. And so Larry had went over to Japan, and when he came back, it was... It was acknowledged right away that, well, Larry Hennig's bigger. He's gained a little more experience. And, of course, they're, they're hyping him, too, and they're, they're, this is part of the push. But our, our world champion for the AWA at the time was, for about eight months, was a masked guy named Mr. M. Under the mask was uh, the great Dr. Bill Miller. And Vern had you know, put the title on Mr. M for a while. And, you know, the big question with a masked wrestler and, of course, having the championship is who's going to be able to uh, win that title? Can Vern win it back? Will it be someone else? Who's going to stop this guy? 
Well, Larry Hennig had come back from Japan in a television match. They, of course, hometown boy, they put Larry in a television match against Mr. M. And lo and behold, Larry was able to win the match. No title on the line, of course, because, you know, a television match, they didn't do that. But he was also able to uh, remove the mask of Mr. M. And Mr. M, of course, grabbed a towel, saved himself. Nobody saw who he was. But this was his first big buildup. And it was kind of a proving ground because naturally, if you're watching that on TV and you had Marty O'Neill in those days, like always, hyping the card, telling fans, run, don't walk to get your tickets. And you wanted to believe that this young Larry Hennig, who was uh, very much a babyface after this successful tour of Japan, could be the guy. And then they had a program together that ran around the AWA circuit at that point. Now, that naturally was Larry's first big run on top. As we moved into 1962, the AWA hosted an eight-tag-team tournament to determine new AWA tag-team champions after uh, the title had been declared vacant. And Larry Hennig was teamed with Duke Hoffman. Duke Hoffman was a wrestler about... He had started in the business about three or four years before Larry. So it would take him back to about 53 or 54. And he started in the business under his real name of Bob Leepler. And he was a, had a great amateur background. He was from New York. He had been relatively successful being a, a journeyman, so to speak, around the different territories. And he was brought in for this tournament with Larry. And it was declared that uh, Larry and Duke would, would win the eight-team tournament. They put a couple of makeshift teams together in it, but we also had the Kelmakoffs. We had uh, Mr. M with a tag team partner in the tournament. Uh, I was another masked guy who they billed as El Rojo Cara. And it was uh, supposedly a Mexican wrestler. But in reality, and nobody knew this, it was Dr. Bill Miller's real-life brother, Dan Miller. And it was a one-shot night. Uh, That's the only time that Dan Miller wrestled uh, under that mask. And, of course, they had two matches in the tournament, and they didn't win, but that was the deal. Uh, And just as a sidelight, Dan Miller did wrestle in the AWA as a TV uh, enhancement talent under the name of Harry Sampson. But he was uh, never here as Dan Miller. So anyway, back to Larry Hennig. Him and Duke, they win the title. Uh, I still look at the program where they're uh, standing together with their hands raised and they're the champions. Now, they only held it for about a month. It was a very short reign. They lost it to, Ty- um, sorry, they lost it to uh, Texas Bob Geigel and Stan Crusher Kowalski. And then the reason for their losing it was that both of them were signed to a tour of Japan again. And Larry and Duke were going over to Japan. And though they did wrestle over there as a team, they also wrestled in singles matches. 
Now, when Larry came back after that tour in Japan in six, early 62, it was noted that, you know, he was bending the rules a little bit. He was not, not quite the same Larry Hennig that he that had left, but still nothing about, you know, really being a hardcore heel. Then he left in 1963, the early part. He left for Amarillo, Texas, went down to work for the Funk Brothers. Dory Funk Sr. at the time was running the Amarillo Territory. And, you know, Amarillo was one of those territories like the AWA where they had uh, put out a tremendous amount of talent throughout the years as far as bringing wrestlers into the business. Guys like Bobby Duncombe, Stan Hansen, Dusty Rhodes, Ted DiBiase, uh, and, and I could go on. But uh, Larry was down there and gained, again, some more important experience. Again, the luxury of territories when you could go work against different talent, different styles, be in front of different crowds. You know, in different parts of the country, you had different attitudes as far as people's uh, viewpoints on on everything from politics to to uh, what's going on in the world, you know. And so that's why that was important, too. Larry worked a little bit for the Dallas-Fort Worth office. It was announced back home. This was one of the things that was kind of unique because they didn't always do this in wrestling. But while he was gone and wrestling down in Amarillo, they would put little tidbits in the wrestling programs that were sold at the Minneapolis and St. Paul auditoriums. And it would be just a little clip that, you know, Larry Hennig taking Texas by storm. They announced that Larry Hennig had won the Texas title from Dory Funk Sr. And it was just a little ways to keep Larry Hennig on the on the minds of the fans. So it's a bit of a sizzle, so a bit back, of a, a bit of a sizzle oh, thing, George. It's kind of just a bit of a sizzle thing. That's a, a you know a little bit of a coming attraction, giving a little peek, so they can kind of set the table as to where they want to go with him. You know his persona wise, and you know whether they'll veer him into the heel territory, which then and of itself will create uh, ultimate ultimate rewards. Well, in part, you're very much right. Yeah, that's that's very true. And you know, and part of it too was that he was a Minnesota boy. So it made sense that he was going to be coming back, and, and they knew that, the, the wrestling office knew that. And so it was just a way to keep the fans alive and, and, and knowledgeable. So when Larry comes back from this tour now of Texas in 1963, he is now acknowledged as, and he was bigger. Larry had just, it just seemed like he was, uh, I don't know, he had just, put on a little weight and, and he was much rougher and he actually was billed for a very short time as big red Hennig. He had bright red curly hair back in those days and big red Hennig. And, you know, Roger Kent, who did the uh, wrestling at ringside commentary on the TV show would make mention of the fact that, you know, Larry Hennig certainly is taking the rough route here and certainly uh, bending the rules and not adhering to the scientific style that he was trained with. Well, then it only became natural that eventually Vern Gagne has to put in his two cents and say, I, you know, I'm getting a little tired of seeing Larry uh, bending the rules in his favor and winning matches by using uh, questionable tactics. 
And then Larry's commenting, you know, coming out and saying, you know, the old man is just jealous of me because I'm, I'm proving to be better and more successful than what he is, and I'm going to be the one to retire him. You have the teacher-student type feud. And so that became a natural. And in 1963, you know, after many uh, verbal jousting back and forth, guess what? Our main events for a couple of cards are Hennig versus Ganya. Now, Hennig was never going to win the world title. Who knows if that may have well been another contention with Larry that he probably would have liked to have went over Vern to to be able to have local Robbinsdale, Minnesota bragging rights. I don't know. But either way, uh, Vern put him over, you know, by putting him in the top cards and Larry made good made a good living. As we moved into uh, the fall of 1964, this was when Larry had been working as a singles wrestler, obviously very hot in the in the fact that he had been teaming with. Uh, um, he, he was actually teaming with the Crusher, by the way, during some of this time in '63. The Crusher, who has had come into the territory as one of the hottest heels uh, that the AWA had seen in the early 60s. And so now you have the Larry Hennig going with the Crusher. That also added to the lure, and they tag-teamed together against Vern and some partners and that sort of thing. But by 1964, October, there was a young wrestler, 21 years old, who had come into the territory. He was going to wrestle on TV doing jobs name of Harley Race. And Larry actually went to Vern and Wally and said, you know, why don't you let me work with this kid? Let me see if I can't, you know, we can do something together. So they put them together as a 21-year-old Harley Race. And Larry was seven, well, let's see, eight years, eight years older. And they were billed as the youngest uh, tag team champions when they finally won the title together. But from October of 64 through December of 64, so about three months, they were undefeated. And who's going to beat them? And it was all along a buildup to get them to the world tag team title. So in January of 65, now billing themselves as Pretty Boy Larry Hennig and Handsome Harley Race. They won the tag team championship from two heels, by the way, still heels at the time, Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Crusher and Bruiser became baby faces in the AWA because when you're wrestling against a Pretty Boy and a Handsome Harley, they were the better guys. <laughs> I was just going to ask a, a couple of questions here about Harley because, yeah, Harley was brought into the AWA. And, uh, well, this was something, uh, again, you could say another uh, byproduct, another thing that beneficial for, for guys when they go down to the territories because it wasn't in the AWA that Larry and Harley first uh, crossed paths. But, but again, down when Larry uh, made a run down to the southern part of the country. Well, they had met each other in Texas, but the storyline was always a little bit different. Uh, that meeting was all but brief, but the storyline for their tag team, and as I just mentioned a moment ago, you know, it was Larry that had went to Vern and Wally and said, uh, let me work with Harley. But it was actually the storyline went that they had met in Texas, 
and realized that they could be the greatest tag team in history. And as they looked over the Texas sunset, they vowed that they would become the greatest team in history. And that was the storyline that was used for them coming together. It, it, they brought it up that Larry had brought Harley in from Texas. But the, the real story was that he went to Vern and Wally and said, let me work with the kid. Mm-hmm. And it was more exciting the other way. Mm-hmm. I have to ask you, though, from a personal standpoint, what do you think made them such a special tag team when they, they got together and started to, their reign of terror? What, do you, what was that it thing for you that uh, really made you uh, pay attention to uh, guys like Larry and, and Harley uh, forming this team? Well, and you know, probably in past talks with me, I'm, I'm a tag team wrestling lover from day one. I always preferred tag teams. And when I list my favorite tag teams, um, to this very day, and I've, I've, trust me, I've seen them all during the 50s and 60s of all the great tag teams. Uh, I, I always picked Larry and Harley as being the one that, for whatever reason, um, in my world, they had that, as you called it, that it factor. But what I think it was is they, they first came up with the, even though they were fully capable of being good draws, probably just wrestling as they did and being rougher, when they threw in that we're pretty and we're handsome. And if you, you know, and I only wish, I, I just, I always wish that there were interviews available today on tape of their interviews or, you know, their matches, because there isn't. But when you heard them talk, you know, they'd come on the interview with Marty O'Neill and Harley Race would say that we have the minds of Einstein, the bodies of Hercules, the faces of the goddess of love. And Larry would say, we have the bodies that men fear and women crave. Well, you know what that's doing to the home audience watching TV. They want to see these two, these two guys just get their behinds handed to them. And that was unnatural. That was part of it. But the other side of it was, is that by Larry's own definition, he said that, that, that what made them unique was that Larry was the brute strength, because he was bigger than Harley, but he, he was the brute strength where Larry or Harley was the, the, the bump taker. And Larry describes it as he was surface transportation, and Harley did all the bumps. And if you watched them wrestle, they, they could just, they had that special formula. Their styles were different, but yet enough alike to be successful. And you know, from 1964, when they hooked up until 1968, they were in solid main events, both as tag team and singles in the AWA. If you go over that course of eight of uh, four years, it's Larry Hennig and Harley Race versus um, just a, a stockpile of tag team combinations. Among them, Igor, Mighty Igor, and Ivan Kelmakov, which was a great combination because you had the veteran and the younger rookie type uh, scenario. You had Vern Gagne, who joined forces with the Crusher, his enemy to get it, Hennig and Race, but now Crusher was a good guy. You had Bruiser and Crusher, and those matches, that, that was the other thing that made Hennig and Race so good. It was Crusher and Bruiser. 
you talk to any fan who was privileged to have seen uh, that four years of wrestling, Crusher and Bruiser, Hennig and Race probably wrestled each other more than any other two teams within that four-year span because they drew money. And that was more evident, not just in the AWA, but these guys, uh, you know, you Harley and, and Larry were, were going international too uh, during that period of time when they were one of the greatest uh, on top of the world tag teams, not only in the AWA, but they were working in New Zealand, Japan, and Australia where they were uh, in Australia, they were winning championship gold. That, I mean, with the IWA. Uh, so these guys were very much in demand and they really got to prove it not only here in the upper Midwest, but in, in foreign countries as well. Well, what they had done there is Larry and Harley had been offered the chance to go to New Zealand and Australia, and so they lost the tag team title here in the AWA to Crusher and Bruiser, because they were going to, you know, Hennig and Race were going to be gone for a while, which was good because we had we had a chance then to see Crusher and Bruiser defend the title to a couple of other teams that probably normally wouldn't have gotten a title shot as far as heels go, so that was good, but Hennig and Race went into New Zealand. And they went in recognized as the very first IWA tag team champions. That, that's kind of a credit right there when, a, when an alliance or a territory will bring a, a wrestler or a tag team in and give them title recognition upon arriving. And they did hold that title. And then they lost it to Mark Lewin and, uh, i got to think here, Dominic DiNucci, I believe was, yeah, Lewin, Mark Lewin and Dominic DiNucci. But they, they were down there, they wrestled, and they also did go to Japan. Again, on some tours to Japan, they went. They also had the great, uh, the great honor of, of working uh, both against each other and as a tag team when they went to Florida in the uh, early 70s. They were down there for a little bit and had a chance to work again together. And they also worked together as a team as uh, late as 1980-81 when they were again in Japan. And now you've got these two rough veterans, Hennig and Race, and they were a team there for a while too. But the only reason their team derailed in the AWA was in 1967 in November, Larry suffered a blowing out knee, broken leg, so to speak, uh, in a match, and he had to have surgery. He was going to be out of action, which he was from uh, November through April of 68, November of 67 to April of 68. And naturally, you don't have uh, tag team champions then that can defend the title. So different storylines, and I've worked on this now in, in a forthcoming book that I'm going to be doing, uh, just getting all the stories straight on the tag team championships. But the the official version was that Harley Race was allowed to take Chris Markoff as a partner to defend the title that he and Larry held together. And they did, Markoff and Race, went into Chicago, the first defense of the title to Wilbur Snyder, Pat O'Connor, Race and Markoff lost. And then Harley was working as both a singles here in the AWA and also formed a a short-lived tag team with hard-boiled Haggerty, which was great. I loved those two together. We could go in on that for another time. But all through the six months that Larry is out of action, uh, the, 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 the injury that he took was actually an accident in the ring against 
believe it or not, Johnny Powers. And Johnny Powers was leaving the AWA at this point. So the storyline became more important to say that it was Vern Gagne that had put Larry Hennig out of action. Vern created that storyline. Larry went along with that storyline. It made more sense because now you've got this feud building over the six months that Larry's out. And when they come back, you've got a ready-made feud. Larry wants revenge. Larry's bitter because he and Harley lost the title. You know, it was beautiful storytelling. And that's what made wrestling in that era so much fun because the soap opera just continued. So when Hennig and Race got back together in 1968, in the spring and into the fall, they, they had reached the point where Harley was getting antsy. Harley wanted to leave. Harley wanted to do a little more traveling. Harley, wanted, Harley was a little more of a wild child than, than uh, uh, Larry was. And Harley wanted to, uh, you know, venture out, spread his wings. He asked Larry to go with him. Larry said, I, I can't go on the road like that. So that pretty much stopped the tag team. And that's how it ended up where Harley went on. And anybody who studies uh, pro wrestling, you know, how great Harley, how great his career was. Mm -hmm. And with, with Larry, you know, he, as we move into the 1970s with the AWA, he did uh, have a couple of uh, makeshift tag teams, uh, including one, an early brief tag with uh, Dusty Rhodes, a young Dusty Rhodes, also uh, Lars Anderson. So let's talk a little bit about the post uh, Harley years into the 70s. We go with, with, with Larry Henning because uh, as the 70s move on, his philosophy gradually changes. And he, before then, he ends up actually, you know, not only working AWA, but he ended up uh, in New York. But let's first talk about some of the tag teams uh, he worked with, like Lars Anderson, uh, Dirty Dusty Rhodes, and, and, and others here in his post-Harley days uh, working for Vern and then finding uh, uh, you know, work elsewhere as uh, he continues to move his career on. Well, he actually had a three-year run with uh, Lars Anderson. And, and the way that came about was Larry and Harley and Lars, Lars had returned to the AWA after wrestling down in the South with his wrestling brother, uh, Gene Anderson. And Lars had wanted to come home, meaning Minnesota, because this was where Larry Hainimi, his real name was, uh, from. And he had come home as a much rougher, the fans hadn't been aware that he was, uh, well, for the most part, they weren't aware that he had been wrestling as a brother to Gene. But when he came back, Lars came back with the blonde hair, much rougher style than Larry Hainimi, who had left uh, three years earlier. And they hooked him up with uh, Hennig and Race in a six-man tag match. That was Race's last match in December of uh, 1968. And he was gone from the territory. And then it was Larry and Lars together. Now, they never got to the tag team title, but for their three-year run, uh, Larry and Lars were main event. They wrestled against the Vashans. They wrestled against Crusher and Bruiser. They wrestled against Ganya and Bill Watts and Bill Watts and Billy Lyons and, you know, various tag teams. So they, again, were on top. And then they'd tell the storylines in the programs. You know, Larry would make a comment that Lars is younger and rougher than Harley was, you know, just to make sure that it made sense that he was teaming with this guy versus Harley. But 
they had a good run together, just never got to the title. When Lars was suspended, you got to put quotation marks around the word suspended mm -hmm. in 19, early 1972, or I'm sorry, yeah, 72. Um, he was actually leaving to go work in the San Francisco territory, Lars was. And so he gets suspended on television for being too rough on Pepper Gomez in a TV situation. And Lars is gone. Well, Larry needs a new partner. So young Dusty Rhodes, dirty Dusty Rhodes, as he was built in those days, is now in the AWA. It made natural sense to put him with pretty boy Larry Hennig, and they were. Now, Dusty had been in the business about, oh, boy, he started in 66, 65, so it would have been about five or six years that he had been in the business, and this was a natural for him. So Larry and Dusty were together for uh, not, not a long time, and then Dick Murdoch came here, and the AWA reunited Murdoch with Rhodes, because they had been successful in the Detroit territory and and uh, together as a team, so that made sense. That was the first time then that Larry decided he was going to be a singles wrestler, and we're right into 1972, going into 73 now. And he says, "I'm finally going to uh, win the singles title, and I'm not going to rely on a partner, and I'm going to end Vern Gagne's reign once and for all. We're going to settle the war." So he had some matches with Fern, and it was a natural. And he wrestled against other guys, you know, other baby faces, that sort of thing. In, in early 1974, Larry left the AWA for one of his very short departures, and he went out east to the what was then the World Wrestling, uh, Worldwide Wrestling Federation, WWWF. And he got a big push out there. Now, Larry was huge. By this time, he was already tipping the scales, probably at a legitimate 275 to 300 pounds. And he went out east. Uh, he was a natural opponent for Bruno San Martino because Bruno, in that 70s, late 60s, 70s era, he fed on bigger guys, monster heels. And Larry was the latest for him, but he also Larry or yeah Larry also got a chance to wrestle against Pedro Morales, who was the uh, WWWF champion at the time. So he had a very good run out there, all but short, only a few months. But that was the that was the nature of how they had promoted challengers on the East Coast at that point in time. They'd bring them in, the heels would get uh, their big push, they would end up wrestling against Bruno and Pedro. And then they would be relegated to a couple of singles matches where they'd lose, and then they'd move on. And that was the WWF formula in that era, and it worked. But that was where Larry had grown his red beard. He started wearing the tunic top. Before that, he was just bare-chested and long tights in all his matches. Now he was wearing that tunic top and the long tights, and he had invented this uh, clothesline elbow smash type hold, which he called the axe. And he was, he was billed as Larry the Axe Hennig. He came back to the AWA, came back still as a heel, now bigger, rougher, and with this new hold, this new finishing maneuver. And he was no longer pretty boy. He said he was going to finish his, 
what he started out to in N. Gagne's career. Well, now Greg Gagne had started wrestling, still a rookie. And Larry took it upon himself to said, I'm also going to end the career of the son of Flicka. That's what he called him. And he had, he had a series of matches with, Jim, uh, with uh, Greg Gagne and then Greg's partner, Jim Brunzel. For quite a while, they were highlighting uh, cards here in the AWA. So we get to the summer of 74, and Bachwinkle and Stevens had lost the tag team championship for a couple of months to uh, the Crusher and Billy Robinson. And during that time, uh, Bachwinkle and Stevens, the storyline was that they were cheated out of the title by conniving promoters. They had contracts thrown in front of them that they, they didn't sign, and they had opponents come forth that they didn't agree to meet, and, and that they were no longer going to suffer this type of humility, and they were going to uh, bring in a manager, and they brought in Bobby the Brain Heenan. And they announced this on TV. This is a match that fans can look up on YouTube. So you've got Bachwinkel and Stevens bragging about their new manager and that they're going to retain the title or get the title back. But on this TV match, they are paired in a match against the young high flyers, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel. And during the course of the match, Stevens and Bachwinkel are doing their normal double teaming and soon Heenan gets into it. Then Jim Brunzel is injured, laying outside the ring. The three of them start teaming up on, on Greg. Roger Kent is saying that this isn't fair. You got three on one. A couple of uh, the jobber wrestlers from the, the locker room came out to uh, allegedly try to restore order. Stevens, Bockwinkle, and Heenan toss them aside like they're, you know, sacks of flour. And then, lo and behold, out of the audience, or out of the locker room, comes Larry Hennig. Roger Kent says, you can hear him on the, on the tape, well, if it hasn't been bad enough for Greg Gagne, now Larry Hennig is getting into the action. Larry comes in and attempts to stop Bachwinkle and Stevens by just kind of pushing them away, no, and they both take Larry and start punching on him, so Larry goes berserk, and he ends up clearing the ring of the three of them. And then he walks over and he picks up Greg Gagne, who's laying on the ring apron, and he carries him out. They, sh they show you him walking away. There was your turn for Larry the Axe Hennig. Now, I will back up very briefly. On a wrestling card in Minneapolis, prior to this Bachwinkle-Stevens encounter with Greg and Jim, Larry Hennig had been teamed with his old partner, Larry Hainimi, who was Lars Anderson, but he was now wrestling as Larry Hainimi back in the AWA. And he was teamed with Larry Hainimi and Buddy Wolf, who was Larry Hainimi's current tag team partner at the time. They were in a six-man. And they had wrestled against Vern Gagne, Greg Gagne, and Jim Brunzel. During the course of that match, Larry Hennig had dropped an elbow onto Greg Gagne, but Greg moved and he hit Lars Anderson, Larry Hainimi, by mistake in the match, allegedly breaking Larry Hainimi's wrist. And that was the first hint 
that we got that Larry, because whenever you see that type of thing, you know there was going to be some flare-up. So immediately, Hynemi and Wolf said that Larry had done it on purpose because he was jealous of our tag team, the Lars or the Larry Hynemi and Buddy Wolf tag team. So that was the first hint. Then that TV match took place, and it was cemented with Greg being carried out by Larry. Beautiful promoting. And what led then to a big, big baby face run for uh, Larry the Axe Henning that that he pretty much stayed a baby face until the end of his run for, for the most part, right? I mean, there could have been the odd, uh, you know, uh, show somewhere here and there, but for the most part, he did maintain his baby face status. Well, for the, you know, this is in 1974, so for the, for the remainder of the 70s, Larry was, along with the Crusher and Vern, those were your three top baby faces in the AWA. And you had them all challenging or being challenged by guys like Bockwinkel, Stevens, Duncan, Lanza, Heenan, uh, Mad Dog, Baron Von Raschke, you know, all of those other guys that came through. Uh, Hennig was the guy. And he had gotten, after 75, he had gotten title shots with uh, uh, Nick Bockwinkel. And he had, he had teamed briefly with Ray Stevens when Ray Stevens broke from the Heenan family in 1976. You know, you had two guys that had mutual hate for the Heenan family now. And that was a natural to put them together. So he and Hennig also teamed uh, with, actually teamed with Vern Gagne for a couple of matches during that late 70s run. Made a natural then, too, because now, you know, he had come full circle. And and that was the beauty of being the the home the home mainstay wrestler because the fans if they followed the the sport throughout his career or the or the fans that followed it on a long term basis they understood this made sense this was natural and for those fans that just came on and were fans for a short time it probably didn't mean as much but it was great promoting. As Larry's career is starting to wind down, the second generation of uh, Henning, of the Henning pro wrestling name, is uh, starting to uh, cut his teeth in the business. And uh, yeah, with the emergence of, of Kurt, uh, you know, that really started to, I, I guess, uh, really started to make things interesting, I guess, for Larry when you consider the big axe and the big tough man. Now he has a, a young son kind of cutting his teeth and being this young high flyer up and comer. So it kind of created a good, dyna- interesting dynamic in the early on the Kurtz career, uh, both in the AWA and in Portland with their t- their tag team. So let's talk about Kurt's emergence in the business, what kind of what Larry's uh, thoughts uh, were as far as you can remember back, and just the, the idea of, of having the double axe attack. As far as I can remember back, you know, I can remember that versus if I had breakfast or not yet today. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it really did come first full circle because now Kurt Hennig was a young, uh, pretty you know, if you looked at Mr. Perfect that you saw later, you saw how he developed, how he developed and his, his body changed and physique, everything. But Kurt Hennig, when he started, was just a scrawny, thin kid. And he was Larry Hennig's kid. He was working the preliminaries. He actually had some matches against Greg Gagne. They even did for just a little bit play up the Gagne-Hennig feud because now this was the second generation. But Kurt was never a heel in those days. And 
eventually you'd have Kurt getting taken advantage of by some ring ruffian, you know, some some bully, and Larry would come out and, you know, you're not going to do this to my boy, that sort of thing, and I'm here to protect him, and, and then Larry would get into it. So the the real turning point for that, though, was Kurt left the AWA, and he went to the Pacific Northwest Territory, which was Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, and, and that territory, little part of Canada, etc. And which, by the way, was one of my favorite territories of all time. They had talent there galore. We could we could have a whole we could have a whole uh, uh, podcast on the Pacific Northwest Territory. But Kurt Hennig went there, and that was when he got his first break because he came in with Larry, and Larry and Kurt were the fir- were billed as the first father and son tag team in that territory. They certainly were not in pro wrestling, though they may have well said that. But they weren't. There had been others over the years. But, you know, that's what you build up in your own territory in those days. So here you got father and son. And they actually had a a short run with the Pacific Northwest Tag Team Championship, which they won from Rip Oliver. Rip Oliver and Playboy Buddy Rose. And AWA fans will remember Playboy Buddy Rose started here in the AWA as Paul Pershman, his real name, and he actually worked his earliest matches both against and teaming with Larry Hennig. Larry had him as a partner one time when he was battling against Greg and Jim, and he said, I don't need a partner. So he just picked up this rookie and he put him on the on the ring apron. That was Paul Pershman. And that was a, one of the angles they played out back in that day. But uh, Kurt and Larry won the tag team title. Now it's interesting because when you talk to Larry about his ring career, and he has said this to me, and in fact, he said it to me just three weeks ago, his biggest joy in wrestling was when he got to team with his son. And he was so proud of the fact that they had the Pacific Northwest Championship. When he came back to the AWA, Kurt was now much more experienced, definitely was getting a push, Larry and Kurt were put against guys like the Road Warriors and Blackwell and and uh, the Sheik and uh, you know they they could go against the other heels. The Freebirds were here, and that's where that started from. But you have to remember, at this point in time, Larry had pretty much been into, shall we say, a semi-retirement. He wasn't wrestling as often, and he had, was already starting to get up in the years, and he was leaving the ring. So it was a good way to push Kurt. And that's pretty much where it was left. Larry left wrestling after that. And we know what happened to Kurt Hennig and his, you know, exciting career later on. So now we've got Larry uh, out of the business. And, you know, through the years, I always kept in touch with him. He kept in touch with me. And we had, uh, we had, we had a fun friendship. Mm-hmm. And you know you, you've you've talked about it. Uh, we, we we've uh, talked about it uh, off mic too in the past. Just uh, how much Larry meant to you. And you know, George, it was just you know when I think about Larry's passing. I just think it's so hard to believe that it was uh, less than a month ago 
that we were, uh, Larry was doing all this media, getting everything kind of ready to go, even answering the phone uh, with uh, Larry the Axe Beer Company when we'd call him about his uh, his beer and at the uh, Wicked Wart and at uh, in Robbinsdale, and what a big event that was, and just you know how time just does its thing a few weeks later we're talking about the man in past tense but boy to be able to have that one big big moment uh, kind of uh, i guess it wasn't at the time a send-off but a big moment like that to really honor him and another direction he's taking and it was taking in life with the beer it must have been you know fun but now we look back it's a little bit more on the bittersweet side well you know with larry hennig let's let's look back at his career real quick you know here was a guy who was inducted into many wrestling halls of fame the waterloo hall of fame george tragos luthes professional wrestling hall of fame he was into the pro wrestling hall of fame in wichita falls texas back in 2017 he was given the mike mazurki award with cauliflower alley which is an award that guys like killer kowalski mad dog vashan to name a couple i mean that's a tough guy award he got that and he, he was also given the luthes award and Luthez was very, uh, very much a good friend of Larry, and that meant a lot to him. And then, as you said, we're sitting at this. He was, he was uh, also inducted into the Robbinsdale uh, Minnesota Wrestling Hall of Fame that's located in Robbinsdale, which is run by Carol Castle. And she does such an outstanding job at, at organizing events. She had inducted Vern Gagne into it and other events, too. And that was part of this Wicked Wart Brewery thing where they were working in conjunction with her. So Larry has got a beer named after him. And, you know, I tell you what, you know, you had mentioned just a moment ago that it's hard to believe that just three weeks ago and now he's gone. That's a reminder to all of us that we never know how many tomorrows we have. I mean, we, we can say we plan for tomorrow, we can plan for next week, next year, but we don't know. And in the case of Larry, that proved to be true. I was with him that day the entire afternoon. We had went to the ceremony. I sat with Larry. We chatted. We talked about Harley Race. We talked about, he even told me how much, how little he thought of Vern. (laughs) We had that conversation. We talked about his health. Larry told me that he had had a tough uh, few months, that he had had a stent put in, and that he had had, uh, he's dealing with his diabetes and he was, uh, you know, tired, but he's, he still feels okay. And during the course of the event, the mayor of Robbinsdale had declared the day Larry Hennig Day. They named the beer after him, of course, the beer called The Axe is Back. And it's one of these uh, uh, novelty beers that they put out, you know, from a microbrewery for a short period of time. And Larry was very proud that it had come to that, and especially in his hometown. I will point out, as I alluded to very early in our interview today, that John Bragalco was there in a wheelchair. Now, I don't know how, how old John is, but if he was Larry's coach when Larry was in high school, and Larry is 82 years old, that tells you that John has got to be uh, at least 15 or 20 years older. I mean, and John is pretty, pretty old looking. He's very frail, but they brought him in in a wheelchair. He was there. And I can tell you, Larry got up from his chair when he saw John and he went down and they hugged each other. And 
that really meant something. And he, he stated later when he was talking to the crowd, Larry, when he was talking to the crowd, how important John Grigelko was to him. That is very, very heartwarming right there. During the event, Larry, they were going to have Larry come up and talk. Larry said to me, he said, you go up and talk about my wrestling career. He said, you know more about me than I know about me, <laughs> which, okay, I, I, that's a compliment. I take that. I, I'm sure. proud of that. I go up and I introduce Larry Hennig's career. I, I talked about how his career progressed, probably many things that I've shared with you and the audience today. And at the end of it, I said, now for one more time, I'm, let's introduce Larry Hennig. And I did it exactly the way they would do it if he was in the ring. I, and I'm not going to go into the, how, how I officially did it, but I said, you know, 275 pounds from Robbinsdale, Minnesota, Larry, the Axe, Hennig. He got his standing ovation. Larry came on the stage. He immediately started talking about his family. He thanked everybody who was involved in this great event today, the, the, the brewery. He thanked Carol Castle. And then he applauded his wife, Irene, of 63 years and said that we're still in love today. He acknowledged all of his uh, sons and daughters that were there. He also acknowledged Kurt, and then he talked about his 28 grandchildren, 17 grandchildren, uh, 11 great-grandchildren. He told the funny story how he has so many grandchildren that I can't even remember their names, so I assign them all a number, <laughs> and that gets a laugh. And he says, you know, I'll say number three. Oh, wait, I don't want you. Go get number five and, and that sort of thing. But all of his grandkids were there. The family, the, the one thing that has just stuck with me is how, how very close the family was. The, the, the grandkids were coming up to him at the event and, and giving him hugs. They called him Papa Axe. You got to love that. Oh, absolutely. And... As the event is over, this is on a Saturday, November 17th, Monday morning, the 19th, I get a phone call at home. George, it's Larry Hennig. Oh, hey, Larry. How are you doing? Doing good. I, I just wanted to thank you for coming out on Saturday and again putting me over. And I want to thank you for all that you've done for wrestling over the years. I naturally just said, well, Larry, I appreciate that, man. I said, you know, uh, you know, I love doing it and it's a pleasure. And we talked for a few minutes again about his health. He said he was, he was kind of feeling run down. He said he was really tired after Saturday. And uh, as we ended the conversation, I said, well, Larry, take care of yourself. I love you, man, and know that you're very important to a lot of people. And I hung up my phone. Well, of course, uh, two weeks later, 
On December 6th in the morning, we get the word that Larry has passed away. So it became that that phone call that I had had from Larry uh, really even meant more because it was almost like he was saying goodbye to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you don't know when the last time you will talk to a friend. So we went, my wife and I, we went to Larry's memorial service yesterday. And uh, immediately when we walked in, we both got a big hug from Irene. Larry's wife, she cried. She said, you guys have always been here for Larry. He loved you so much. That makes you feel good, and it makes you feel sad that you're not going to be able to see him again. The memorial service, uh, Glenn, was extremely well done, well orchestrated, very, very moving. And trust me, there were a lot of tears in the ceremony. he had a Catholic service. His, uh, his daughter, Susan, got up and delivered a eulogy. And I will point out, just backing up one second, the, the uh, priest, the chaplain that did the service, had a very personal touch with his, his delivery when he said that in the final days of, of Larry Hennig, he had been at his side. And Larry had had uh, pretty much known he was probably not going to make it. And he said, I got a chance to talk with him and uh, got to know who Larry was. And, and he was just a fine, fine man. Now, Susan gets up, his daughter, Larry's daughter. The first thing she says when she comes to the lectern is she said, and she was already pushing tears away, she said, Dad, give me strength. And she started to talk about her dad, about the great grandpa that he was. And she told the story how he gave all the grandkids the, um, the numbers. And he said, but if you, he said he had a number for each grandchild, but if you asked him who was number one, every one of his kids and grandchildren were number one. That was great. I mean, that that's very moving. And she talked about how he was as a dad when they were growing up, when they would go on vacations and they would go on the boat and they would go hunting, and he was always there for our for our school events and and he's always always taken care of mom. And she said that on the morning of December sixth, Larry had actually called the kids. Susan and the, her brothers and other sister, and said goodbye to them, that he, he didn't think he was going to make it, and he said goodbye, and she's just wiping away the tears. Of course, I'm already reaching for Kleenex that I didn't have, and so I hit my friend up next to me, Joyce Postian, and I got some Kleenex from her. And, but she talked about it and, and just thanked him for being such a great dad and a great guy. And when you when you hear that, you know that brought it to the to the finale. But that was Larry Hennig. He he was a very very good man. And when you look at the choices that he made, just in his wrestling career, um, you say, well, he made the right choices, and for the right reasons. 
And family always comes first. And if you have family first and friends first, you know, I've always said, Glenn, that if you have that, you, you're a success in the world. It doesn't matter your wealth or your, or your titles that you get during, during a lifetime or achievements. It's being a family, having a family and, and being recognized as a good dad and a good grandpa and a good wife and a good husband, and et cetera. And so I think that was a great message that came out of it. And as I walked away, I just, again, I thought about that phone call from uh, Larry Hennig on Monday, the 19th of November. And you just realize that I, I think he, I think he knew that it was, was coming to the end. And so in the end, I say to Larry and like every other wrestling fan, where especially the crazy ones like me who have been so surrounded by all of these guys bigger than life over the years and have been able to call them friend and have them call me friend. I just say thank you, Larry, for all you did, all you provided me, and I pray that the Lord has you at his side and you're at peace, and we will always remember you. So very well spoken, George. Very well spoken. As we wrap up, we went a little bit into overtime today on wrestling Memories Then and Now, but I think this was uh, uh, an occasion that warranted such overtime. Uh, George, welcome back, my friend. This was a, a bit of a sad one to come in, but boy, when you get to talk about the memory of a man who lived such a full, full life like Larry the Axe Henning, there is, again, there's bitter with the sweet, but overall we were celebrating such a, a wonderful, giving, caring man. Well, you know, as I told his wife, Irene, I said, you know, always remember that when you think of Larry and he brings a smile to your face and you remember all those fun times, he's still with you. As long as you remember all of that, he's with you. He's there. He's holding your hand. He's, he's, he's giving you a hug. I said, that's, that's what I look at death as being. And she, uh, she was, you know, she said, I'm overwhelmed with all of the people that were there. I mean, I didn't even tell you, Glenn, he had, he, the comment was made by Susan that my dad would be happy that once again, he sold out the place <laughs> That's because great. the church, the church was full. And I mean, it was a big church and I certainly didn't count, but I, I've got to believe there were three or 400 people there and it was packed. And uh, there were some some wrestling notables that showed up. Uh, Kenny J and his wife were there. Uh, Paul Ellering was there. Um, uh, Jim Brunzel and his wife were there. Um, Jesse the Body Ventura showed up and paid his respects to the family. And I actually had a chance to talk with Jesse for a little bit. As always, that's interesting. <laughs> but uh, that's for another time. But he uh, he had a very good send off, and I, I'm I feel I'm honored that uh, I've had a chance to spend my entire life uh, knowing Larry Hennig. I actually talked to him for the very first time in 1972. I was 21 years old. In fact, I wasn't quite 21 yet. I was uh, like 20 and a half. But I talked to Larry for the first time and we became friends after that. And of course we're talking 46 years. So uh, it's a part of me. 
Absolutely. But thank you for having me on. And uh, next time we do this, we have to do it uh, on a more pleasant note. A uh, thousand territories to talk about and wrestlers. We got to do it that way. Oh, wow. Not maybe for a, another passing. For sure. We're going to have you. I mean, this is uh, just as much your show as it is mine, as is the uh, Grizzled Vet. This is the Wrestling Memories family, my friend. We can't shake each other off. The door always stays open. There you go. Thank you so much. And God bless Larry Hennig. Yes. For George Shire, I'm Glenn Brogan. You've been listening to Wrestling Memories Then and Now.